Do you enjoy scrolling through IMDb at 3 in the morning to find Spielberg's first film credit? Did you find yourself asking, what's happening, while watching M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening? Ever think to yourself, in what world would a movie studio give Christopher Nolan all that money to make a dream police movie? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then we have the perfect podcast for you to check out called Blank Check with Griffin and David. Every Sunday, Griffin Newman, star of Amazon's The Tick, and David Sims, senior critic at The Atlantic, go in-depth on the world's most famous directors and discuss their full bodies of work. Looking for a place to start? Check out Paul Shear from How Did This Get Made discussing Running Scared or Chris Gethard discussing As Good As It Gets. Search for Blank Check with Griffin and David on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Avenger Hardware. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, what we're going to do here today is uh, we're going to do a double review. Uh, we, are got, we got a review of Alfonso Cuaron's newest movie, Roma, followed by a review of uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' new, newest movie, The Favorite. Uh, and Britt Hayes is going to be joining us for both those reviews. It's going to be a lot of fun. Britt Hayes, someone we've had on the show a few times, and I've always appreciated her perspective on movies. So that's what yeah. you got to look forward to today. Find more episodes of the podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And email us is what people did this week, didn't they? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I would say we got more feedback on last week's episode of the show than any other episode this year. That's what I yeah, would say. Dave, I want to say something because yes. you have, you have something uh, I, to say. Yeah. a lot of people uh, emailed me, t- tweeted at me. The, the Slack film cast was, was very active. A lot of people said they were frustrated with last week's episode. Uh, some people found it hard to listen to. I heard that a lot. And I understand why. It's because there was no limerick. And I apologize. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know how I could let that happen. Yeah. I, it will never happen again. And I'm, I'm mea culpa, mea culpa. It's on me. I will never allow that to happen again. No, no limerick in the entire episode. Well, well, Jeff, here's the question is, can you now share with us your limerick for the Creed two uh, review that, that never got said? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this was, uh, was going to be in the spoiler section of the review. So that's why it never happened. Cause we never really had an official spoiler section for that review. Uh, <laughs> but so, uh, you know, if you don't want to be spoiled for Creed 2, I would say skip forward 30 seconds because it's a limerick. It's not going to be long. Uh, but this it has some kind of spoilerish for Creed 2. Okay, here's the limerick. Ivan and Rocky re-meet to make a 30-year story complete. It's Donnie's survival, but I feel for his rival because there's just no pleasing Brigitte. <laughs> Pretty good, right? <laughs> Which who's Brigitte in that movie again? <laughs> Brigitte Nielsen, yeah. the mom. Oh yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah, man. yeah. Uh, I, I get it. Um, uh, how do we feel about this, Devendra? That was awesome. That casting of her as the mom. Come on. Okay, I, I, I'm down with that. It's not. It's not bad, but um, re meet. I don't think is a word. R e dash m e e t. They re meet. Mm. They meet again. Come mm. on. Uh, very creative very creative very creative um but okay in in all seriousness uh we did get a lot of feedback uh from 
last week's episode. And he, all all I have to say about it is this: is that uh, we are extremely grateful whenever any person is a guest on the show uh, and shares their point of view. And uh, so that is inclusive of uh, our guest last week, Joseph Kahn. It's inclusive of anyone who expresses uh, strong opinions. One of the things I really appreciate about people with strong opinions is that, like, uh, they can cause people to rethink their perception of the movie. And and here's the thing. Like, for all the emails we got about how people weren't a fan of Joseph's interpretation of the film and perhaps the way in which he conveyed it, we also got a bunch of messages about how they loved that appearance. So I just want to make clear that, like, uh, it was a polarizing episode. But polarizing means by definition that uh, people on both sides had uh, really strong and positive reactions to it. So uh, we do appreciate all the feedback. um, And uh, feel free to keep it coming into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. But, yeah, wanted to say that uh, the, the, the... Debate was very spirited. There was one email that I felt really captured the spirit in which Joseph appeared. Uh, this, this is, I don't know if Joseph agrees with this, but this is like my feeling. So Rob sent in uh, this email to uh, slash from com, and he writes in, uh, this week's episode, the Creed 2 episode, was definitely a roller coaster. I laughed. I cried. I was even angry a few times, but after some reflection, I've concluded that Khan's seemingly strident eruptions were all done with a twinkle in his eye and with the purpose of jarring the audience into thinking a little bit harder about movies. I've never heard anyone who can go from complete irony to deadpan to utter sincerity and back to irony in a single sentence the way Khan can. As brash and rough around the edges as he may seem at first blush, the man is a treasure trove of insights. Thanks for having him on. Um, so that email comes from Rob, and like that's the email I felt like most fully captured the spirit of what I thought Joseph was trying to do on last week's episode. <laughs> right, um, right. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, he 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 challenged our opinion on that movie, um, and yeah. brought up some some interesting points. So, um, I really liked it. I honestly did, and and I and I know um, people may have felt uh, a tension, but I, you know, I. I I like being challenged. I, I enjoy spirited debate. I I really was forced to think about the movie in a way I hadn't, and you know i I thought it was I thought it was great. I really appreciated him. I I mean, I wish there are things in listening to it again, which I did. Uh, that things I wish I had said, and things that I wish I had heard, because I really uh, I really think that him not having the first creed fresh in his mind uh, made him misinterpret some stuff. About the movie that I wish I could have heard him misinterpret that I could have remind or we could have reminded him of a, a little better, perhaps. But um, overall, I, you know, I, I I thought it was I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, very spirited conversation. Um, so really appreciate it. All right. Before we get going to our review, uh, I do want to mention just a couple of things I was able to watch this week. And I just want to give a shout out to them. Uh, but the biggest one I, I want to mention and encourage people to see is Barry Jenkins' new movie, If Bill Street Could Talk. You guys heard about this movie? Sure, um, of course. This yeah. is his follow-up to Moonlight, and it is excellent. Um, it is really good and a very different kind of story than Moonlight. It's, uh, uh, it is uh, much more of a love story. Uh, it's also about the justice system and how that interacts with African Americans in American society. And I found it to be a very powerful, moving film. It's going to be out uh, later this month, but I would recommend uh, everyone check it out. And I also need to say this about a different movie that I saw 
which is called Vox Lux. Have you guys heard of this movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a new movie where Natalie Portman plays a, a pop star, like Lady Gaga-esque, Sia-esque pop star. Uh, and there are very few movies I watch uh, where I, I like actively hate the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and Dave, you watch very bad movies. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> there are very few movies where I'm like, I hate this movie. You know, like I, I actively hate it and 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 want to prevent people from going to see it. You know, like, because here's the thing: every movie is the culmination of usually at least dozens of people, if not hundreds of people's work, right? And no one's trying to make a bad movie. Everyone's trying to do a good job. Um. But this was the, the the only movie I saw in 2018 that I outright despised. Um, <laughs> Why? What was it? I mean, I feel like I want to see Natalie Portman as a pop star. That sounds like that sounds like fun. No, I, I mean, I'll just say that uh, it, it, it the opening of this movie. I mean, it, it's it, it's in the plot summary of the movie. Like if you watch the trailer, like it's it's in there. Um, but it's basically about a tragedy that occurs. And the imagery to depict that tragedy is extremely inflammatory, right? And we're going to talk about this, spoil, you know, like foreshadowing for our, our Roma review. But like when you show something extremely upsetting, I feel like you, you then need to earn the right to show us that, right? And you need to like, just like, okay, there was a reason I showed this to you. And it's because I'm a genius and I had this really like master plan for showing it to you. Uh, and I do not feel the movie lives up to that. Um, it, not even close. Um, and I just found the general experience of watching the movie to be pretty unpleasant. So, uh, the, the separate than that, that scene that I'm talking about, I, I just thought it was, it's one of those movies that like, um, I, I, I hate, like I'm, I'm violating all the rules, right. That I set for myself when doing the podcast, right. Here's, here are some of the rules that internal rules that Dave Chen follows for the slash film cast. Um, don't hate on movies, right? Like, or, or when I don't hate on movies, but like, don't, uh, don't like be offended or, or hate on movies. Like, like try to be encouraging of, of the, of the craft, right? People worked hard. Like, respect that. These are some of the rules I try to abide by. Um, don't use the, don't use vague terms like pretentious, uh, when you're talking about a movie. This movie was really pretentious, guys. <laughs> I, I mean, that's all. Yeah. That, you know, that's all I want to say about it. I, I can't get into more details right now, but like, yeah. don't. I, I think if you saw his first movie, this is uh, Brady Corbett, right? Yeah, uh, his first movie, Childhood of a Leader, it doesn't quite work, but I think it's really interesting. But that's another movie I could imagine you would hate, Dave. Yeah, and it's just like I think the movie is very long too. That's the thing is like, if it was a shorter film, uh, it might be a different story. Um, but it's like I think there might be people who are like, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm, I might go check this out," and I, I want to say like, "Don't, don't do that." Um, but, but <laughs> more of a public but, service announcement than anything else. But to be fair, like, there's many people who really like this movie, so uh, tread carefully, tread carefully. So those are just a couple things. Like one thing I saw that was really awesome that's coming out later this month, and another thing I saw that wasn't that great that's coming out later this month. If Beale Street could talk and Vox Lux. So those, those are what I've been watching this week. All right, Dave. It's time for our sponsor, and I want to try something that I hope will catch on that I'm calling Six Degrees of a Segway, and I hope <laughs> you'll help. Uh, so uh, you were just talking about Natalie Portman, uh, and our sponsor is HelloFresh. 
Do you think we can get from Natalie Portman to HelloFresh in six degrees? Uh, doubtful, but I'm, I'm willing to watch you try. No, you're going to help me. So Natalie Portman was in Black Swan. Yeah. Where she plays a ballerina. Ballerinas are dancers. Dancers uh, spin around. <laughs> Spinning around gets you dizzy. Dizzy Gillespie was a, a jazz musician, and jazz is super fresh. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you are an insane person. <laughs> Hello, Fresh is our sponsor. Uh, if you want delicious food sent right to your door uh, that you can then cook, uh, if that doesn't sound good to you, let me persuade you because this this has changed my life. Uh, I didn't. I didn't start out as a person that enjoyed cooking, but I have become one because all of the hangups about cooking have been removed from my life. Figuring out what to what to make, coming up with great recipes that are presented to me in, with step-by-step instructions, having uh, ingredients that I don't have to go to the store and buy. These, these are boxes of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated trusted sources sent right to my, my door. And I can cook them for my family. I, I look forward to my delivery knowing that dinner's easy. It's decided. I can cook it. I can provide. I can get that skill. It's so much fun. All the ingredients are pre-measured, so there's no waste. There's no extra bits that I have to throw away that are just going to go bad in my fridge. And I spend less time planning meals, spend less time grocery shopping. It's so convenient and so great. And – we have an awesome deal for you because you listen to Slash Filmcast. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com slash Filmcast60 and enter promo code Filmcast60. Got to have the 60 on there. That's for $60 off. It's like receiving six meals free. That's HelloFresh.com slash Filmcast60 and promo code Filmcast60 for $20 off your first three boxes. Before we get to our reviews of Roma and The Favorite, we got to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Big thanks to Michael Furster and Jeff Kaplan for their donations. Thanks also to Ryan Polly Creative, uh, Ramses Severiano, Severiano, and Chad Franks for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. And throw some money our way. Uh, all the money you donate does go to help us defray the cost of doing the show and putting it on for you. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate it. Of course, we never want you to donate if it is in any way a hardship for you. Um, if you just want to contribute for free, uh, all you got to do is go to iTunes or wherever else uh, and leave a review for us. We'd really appreciate it. So thanks to everyone who donated to us this week. You guys are awesome. And uh, we really appreciate it, especially during this time of year. Uh, so let's get to our reviews of Roma and The Favorite. trailer from Roma, the newest film by writer-director Alfonso Cuaron. And this is a Slash Filmcast. Joining us today, uh, she is a freelance film critic, 
Britt Hayes, welcome back to Slash Filmcast. Britt, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Uh, good. Good to have you on again. Uh, always really enjoy the episodes in which you can make an appearance, and really happy you're here to uh, help us dissect Roma. And uh, before we talk about this movie, let's talk about how we saw the movie because uh, this is a movie that uh, they sent out uh, screener discs. Uh, to critics, they also uh, played this movie in limited release in theaters this past weekend. So, how did how did you all see the movie, Britt? How did you see this movie? I saw it on one of the two or three screeners that Netflix sent me. Hmm. <laughs> so, that, yeah, they sent you like a ton of stuff, right? They sent. You oh yeah, I got Roma multiple copies, copies of everything. <laughs> gotcha, uh, Jeff Kanata. So curious how you saw Roma. I uh, I really wanted to see this on a big screen, but I did not could not find it playing around me. Even though that I'm I'm in Los Angeles, I couldn't find uh, a theater that was playing it around me. So I I had to resort to a screener as well. And unfortunately, the screeners are standard definition DVDs. Um, watched it uh, on you know uh, upscaled, but yes, sadly <laughs> on a standard DVD. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so Jeff also watched it on a television. Um, uh, Devinder, how about you? Uh, I saw it at the IFC Center here in New York, and uh, you know it was pristine. I don't think there was Dolby uh, Atmos audio, which I think was one of the requirements for some of the theaters or something. I was saying, uh, but it had really good sound. So it was the best presentation I could think of, um, especially since most people will be seeing this on streaming. Yeah, uh, so I saw this movie at the Seattle Cinerama, which is probably one of the best theaters in in Washington State. Um, It was projected using a 5K laser projector and Dolby Atmos. The the Dolby Atmos was so good that I actually got angry a couple times uh, Uh watching the movie because I literally thought that uh, somebody in the movie was talking, like, loudly. (laughs) And disrespecting the movie. In Spanish. In Spanish. And disrespecting the movie. But in fact, what was happening was the mixing, the sound mix for the crowd scenes was so mm. immersive that it literally felt like they were, like I was in a crowd with people that were It turns out you it. did not respect the sound mix enough, Jeff. That's, uh, that's correct. Like, it's like that it stinger. It's like the stinger they play that tells you to turn your cell phone off or it has like the people talking behind you and the yes. thing. <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, you got me, stinger. It's like that, but for a whole movie. <laughs> you got me. You got me. Okay. <laughs> so that's how we all, we all saw the film. Uh, so why don't we start with you, Britt? What did you think of Roma? <laughs> Um, I'm here to shit on everyone's parade. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You know what? Here's the thing. I think it's really, obviously, really well made. I mean, Coron is an incredibly talented filmmaker. There's no doubt about that. I just think the story is severely lacking. And I think the biggest issue for me is that the lead character, Cleo, doesn't feel like a real person. And for a film that's so preoccupied with realism and naturalism i feel like she should feel more like a real person but she doesn't feel like an agent in her own life she's not an active participant everything just kind of happens to her and around her and it's all not really that interesting anyway and at a certain point it starts to feel really insulting and almost like tragedy porn mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> it's just one bad thing after another at a certain point in the film that just keeps like if it can go wrong it will and i just get kind of this like distaste for it of this like wealthy person making a movie about his maid i just don't know that that's the right person to tell that story because it just 
really does feel so limited by his view and what his experience was. I mean, if he had made a movie about the kids growing up there, then I think maybe it would have been different and maybe my reaction would have been different. But the fact that he's telling this story about this young woman, I mean, she just feels so passive, especially there's that scene early on where she's just, you know, hooked up with that guy in the hotel room and the way that she just watches him and just lets him dictate that whole situation and he's trying to impress her with his stupid martial arts which is also just like really offensive i sincerely hope that his maid did not have to hook up with a guy that was that obsessed with martial arts like that i would be so insulted like if she did at least like fabricate it and make it look like she hooked up with somebody cooler like Instead of this like loser that most women like dated in high school. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, uh, so I think yeah, uh, I, I've seen this reaction uh, online a few times, and I think this is like a very reasonable reaction to have to this movie. Uh, the filmmaking style for Roma is very interesting, right? It, it is. Um, we just saw this movie Mother last year. Which, putting aside whether you like Darren Aronofsky's film Mother. Uh, he he clearly tried like to to use a subjective point of view for that movie. Ninety nine percent of the shots in Mother are point of view shots, close up on Jennifer Lawrence's face, mm-hmm. um, or over the shoulder of Jennifer Lawrence. Right, so that camera puts you in that person's perspective. Whereas with this movie Roma, ninety nine percent of the shots are either uh, camera gliding side to side, uh, tilt up and down, or pan side to side. Right, something, some variation or combination of those things, and it does feel like it puts the viewer at this kind of objective remove from the subjects of the movie, and I think that for some people it it makes them feel uh, like this is a very impersonal story. Like you don't feel like you're in the person's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you you feel like you're observing them like under a microscope or in some kind of laboratory. Yeah. Um, and I, I've heard that, by the way, like I've heard that complaint as well, but he's been doing this sort of thing for a while too. like the, the observer uh, style camera. I think back to like Itumama and like how that movie like we'll be looking at the characters and then all of a sudden the camera will just go off on its own adventure and the narrator will start like talking about something and give you the history of something like I think his camera work uh, children, children of men did that quite a bit as well, like when it would just pan and tell you something else. Yeah, it's true, but but that was that was in a broader mix of like there's many Uh scenes in Children of Men that are like steady cam following with the character, like you're right up close with them. You know, there's there's almost none of that in this movie, and uh, and I I found that was a very interesting choice, and I think for some people it'll really work really well, but I can it's also like a very bold choice, and I can understand Mm -hmm. for some people it doesn't work well at all. Um, and so Britt, I don't know, like for you, like you felt the style contributed to kind of your reaction to the film. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and especially hearing you guys talk about it now, it's sort of crystallizing for me that I think that, you know, yeah, that has been his style for a long time or it's been the core of his style. But I think he should have adapted or changed. So it did feel like I was I mean, it's very clear that, you know, this is a story from her perspective. But again, like the camera doesn't reflect that. And it just it does. It feels really impersonal and really wish that he had done something different i mean it, it, and then maybe that in person mm-hmm. that impersonal quality speaks to the technical accomplishments but it, it didn't even feel to me like it was from her perspective it felt to me like i was 
uh, like it was his perspective. Like yeah. it was like or like, or like uh, we were watching a memory. Yeah, basically. like we were like watching. We, we were his, going back in time yeah, and watching that. Like we were watching his because so it's a semi autobiographical based on um, his uh, experience with his maid growing up, um, who is actually in real life called Lebo and who the film is dedicated to. Uh, but it, it felt like I was watching, yeah, his memory of what it was, mm-hmm. rather than like experiencing her uh, her life. If that makes well, that sense. would be yeah. fine if like a thirteen year old made this, but you <laughs> well, fair, know, fair enough. Fair I enough. mean, if I were his maid and I watched this movie and it got to that card at the end, it's like for Lebo, I would have been like, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> well, fair, fair enough. That's uh, a totally valid reaction, Jeff Kanata. What did you think of Roma? Well, Dave, I guess my <laughs> thoughts about this movie could best be summed up in the form of a limerick. Do you guess that? Do you guess that? Jeff? Yeah. Oh, no. Here you go. We all want. I'm sorry, Britt. If you're not familiar, uh, Dave Chen has mandated that uh, <laughs> the Slash Film cast have limericks. And I'm I'm the only one who's taken up that responsibility. And I don't want Dave to get upset that we don't have limericks. So even sensitive movies like this need a limerick. <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm pulling my weight. Here's my limerick. For Roma. In 70s Mexico, you'll feel immersed, and every frame is so full it could burst. It's gorgeously shot, but I'm left with the thought that in every culture, men are the worst. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> nice. That was, that was very good, Jeff. Pretty much, yeah. Very good. That's the entire movie right there. Very good, yeah. <laughs> um, so I have some complicated things to talk about with this movie. And I hope you guys will indulge me. Um, I watched this movie as, as I mentioned with the uh, screener and it was, it was a harrowing experience. It's a harrowing film. Um, I mean, I had, there's a scene in it that <laughs> was, I, I got angry at the movie for putting me through it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. it was, it was hard. Uh, and ironically, my wife was watching it with me, you know, we were often exhausted. She fell asleep uh, in this movie and happened to wake up at that moment for that scene. Mm. And I was like, honey, just go back to, this is not the time to be Close your eyes. awake. Yeah. Not anyway. Uh, I think it's the, the movie is beautiful and harrowing and dark and hard to watch, but m- more what I want to say. And I think this kind of speaks directly to what you guys have been talking about. Um, and again, I hope you guys will indulge me and understand where I'm coming from on this. The night after we watched it, I happened to have the the screener sitting on our kitchen table, and we pay for childcare. We have someone that comes and uh, looks after our kids. My wife and I both work, and we have to pay for childcare. We happen to have an, an amazing woman that comes, uh, a nanny for our kids, um, that comes uh, a few days a week and does a few hours for us. She's incredible. She's from El Salvador, and her personal story is absolutely uh, horrifying. Um, the things that, that she has endured to come to this country legally, I should note. Uh, but uh, she came over ahead of her daughter and husband for years and worked to make enough money to bring them over. And she's now doing that for her sister. Um, she has gone, she literally fled violence. In her country. I mean, it is her, it is the story she has told me will make your skin crawl. It is unbelievable what she has gone through. Okay. But she's a delightful, sweet, warm person who is a absolutely benevolent, wonderful force in my child's life. And we are very lucky to have her. I say that to you because she saw the screener on the table 
And she said, oh, my God, I've been wanting to see that. And, and I said, oh, really? I didn't even know you, you know, you were aware of this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. She said, um, even when she said, I've been wanting to see that because the main character looks like me. Mm-hmm. She said, even when there are movies with Latin actresses, they never look like me. They always look like Hollywood people. They don't look like me and the people I know. So I, I really wanted to see this. And I said, I watched it last night. It's really a difficult film to watch in a lot of ways. It's very hard, but you know, I'd love to find out what you think of it. And she sent me uh, a text after she watched it. And I asked her if it would be okay to read it on the show. And she said she would, she would be honored. So I'm going to read to you what she wrote to me about watching it. And it has informed how I feel about the film. And I wonder maybe if it will inform specifically some of the criticisms that you guys have just voiced. So mm-hmm. she said, <clears throat> I just finished watching, sorry for the late text, but we just finished watching the movie. And this is what my husband and I think after a good cry. Thank you for letting me borrow it. What a beautiful movie. It's a film that holds your heart the whole time watching it. I identified so much with the love she feels for those kids and how she found healing in them. I identified with how I found healing in the twins I was taking care of when my daughter was not here and how Jack and Zoe, your kids, helped me heal now that I lost my grandmother. Every detail in the movie is so real. We are not from Mexico, but we identify so much with it. Even the plates they use in the movie make you feel like you are home. So touching. And as you said, you do not even feel you can watch some of the scenes. But my husband said, this is the raw reality for some people. Even the hospital is so like the hospitals in my country. It reminds me of when my daughter was born. In conclusion, exceptional in all aspects. I do not know if I can even call it a movie because it does not feel like it. It feels too real. Every detail so well taken care of and above all, so close to the daily reality of people like me. So I, I found that very moving. And, That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of informed how I feel about the film. I mean, it's, it's, I think, easy for us to say, oh, you know, he made this movie and it's from his perspective. And, and I think that's probably got some truth in it. But I think there's enough of what he observed and what is the truth for a lot of people like the nanny who takes care of my kids and others like her. That it's kind of an important film event for, for her. And I also think that it, it brought to my mind, uh, a reality that I wasn't aware of and, and showed it to me in a starkness and dramatized things that, yeah, it was hard for me to watch and I wanted to turn away from often, but there are people who live that. And I think that this is an honest, raw, gorgeously presented film that I, I think is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Devendra, let's hear your thoughts on, on Roma. I think, um, you know, coming out of this movie, uh, seeing it at a pack theater here in New York, I could barely like get up and walk out of the theater. I kind of like staggered my way through. I went to Joe's Pizza. I got a slice and I just sat there and just like looked at people watched for a while. Um, I think like a lot of Coron's movies, they're so much about life and about death. Like I, I think his his style, his sensibility kind of dances on that knife edge. and you know, this just feels so real. It just feels so true to life. It feels like we were dropped down into his memories. 
And, uh, you know, for better or worse, I think some aspects are certainly romanticized. Uh, his portrayal of Cleo, um, she is so, I wouldn't say she's a non-character, but she's very perfect. You know, everything about her is very idealized. Uh, but at the same time, like, I couldn't help, you know, empathize with her. I loved her as a character. Um, she responds to the world, you know, it, it, it may not seem like she's very active, but I think uh, the actress, uh, Ulitsa Aparicio, this is her pretty much her first role. Um, it just feels so her responses feel so real and so genuine to everything. And I think just because she's not saying much and just because she's, you know, not loud or really flashy about anything, uh, her responses to everything, the way she tenderly takes care of the family, um, even when the mother kind of yells at her because she's in a bad mood. Uh, the way she fits into that world, the way she just tries to get by, even when the world is unfair to her, her like innate uh, gentleness and goodness kind of radiates throughout the entire film. And I think for better or worse, you know, uh, spoilers, I guess uh, there, there's stuff we're going to talk about in spoilers, but I think there, there's one frame in particular that's like, okay, you think this woman is a saint. I get it. Um, but at the same time, I think the movie does a good job of, you know, diving into this character and giving us some sense of uh, what she is dealing with and what she's thinking, even if she's not saying much. Um, I brought up Itumama earlier. That movie relied on a narrator to explain a lot of things. And I think this movie goes the next level to give you that kind of obtuse camera work sometimes and present you something without even trying to explain it. You know, it's up to you to like read this reality, read these characters and see how they're dealing with it. Um, yeah, I found it very raw, very real, very funny, very touching at times. Um, it seems like both a love letter and an apology to the woman who helped raise him, mm. uh, because wow. I'm sure yeah. he's also well aware that, you know, this is not exactly fair. Um, but you are part of my life and you can feel the love coming through there. Um, I think one thing this movie also does really well is it shows, you know, this is a middle class family we're seeing, but. Yeah, you know, everybody has these sorts of uh, maids and housekeepers. It's such a common thing. Uh, I uh, I was born in South America, and I visited there a couple of times since then um, in Guyana. It's not the same as these countries, but throughout Latin America, throughout South America, it's not uncommon for every, you know for people to have household helpers. You know, somebody you pay just to help clean up, help to cook. Um, and it's not it's not like you're looking down on these people. It's because people need to make a buck, you know, and this is a simple thing that a lot of folks can do and they end up becoming a part of your family. So in that way, I relate to this movie as well. I think coming from it, um, especially from an American perspective, you know, the idea of having help or household assistance can sometimes seem extra uppity. And I don't know if that's really the case here, although this family is certainly more well to do than most of the people we're seeing in this movie. Uh, but I just, you know, kind of want to point out that other aspect of it. The, like household help, you know, sometimes people need it. And culturally, in a lot of places, it's it's a very, very common thing. I think this movie did a great job of also showing us like the kind of the downsides of it, too. Like how, you know, this, uh, you know, very light skinned family has to hire these dark skinned indigenous workers um, and kind of the very big differences in the way they live. Uh, the movie showed us a bit of that. I would have liked to see maybe more. Honestly, I could have watched this movie for for hours more. This felt like boyhood to me, um, except without, you know, the the whole temporal thing. This feels like him just going straight back into his memories. I have to say that after listening to you guys talk a little bit more, and especially after listening to Jeff read that text message, which I found really moving also, 
I mean, even as a female critic, I'm not, you know, immune to being limited by my own perspective. I am white after all. And, you know, that's a perspective that I don't get. Like, just it's not my fault. It's just this is how I was born. These are my Mm -hmm. life experiences. So to hear that and to hear her joy at being represented that way and seeing herself on screen Um, I can't say that I feel that much differently about the film. I do still feel removed from it. And I do still feel as though I didn't. I mean, clearly, I just didn't have that emotional reaction to it. And I, you know, I wish I had. I wish I felt great about every movie. But um, it has made me reconsider the film as a whole and sort of the story it's telling. And, um, you know, I took some issues while I was watching it with, like, the mother and how Mm -hmm. she's going through this very, like, stereotypical thing of like, oh, her rich husband who's a doctor is cheating on her. And it's like, how many times have I seen that? But it's like, yeah, how many times have I in America seen that in white people movies and TV shows? And this is, you know, a completely different experience and point of view. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's the disconnect for me. Yeah, I mean, I think something that this year, uh, twenty eighteen, has has brought to light uh, or has re-emphasized is like how powerful representation is. You know, I went through a similar moment. Uh, obviously, extremely different movie, but Crazy Rich Asians. That movie came out. A lot of people uh, might have thought it was just like, oh, you know, it's a it's a fluffy romantic comedy. But mm-hmm. I think like the Asian community really rallied around that movie because it's like, hey, these are uh, like you know Asians and Asian Americans on the big screen that aren't just like side characters and caricatures and uh they look like us and they're aspirational you know um and that's very powerful despite the fact that uh you know r- romantic comedies we talk about maybe like one or two romantic comedies per year on this podcast mm-hmm. you know but just the fact that like oh wow th- that movie captured some component of my lived experience is is a very powerful thing um and uh, at the same time, I can understand like why for a lot of people it might not have been as powerful. You know what I mean? Because like uh, they've had a completely different lived experience than me. So, uh, so appreciate the reflection. You know, Britt, we're all just trying to figure it out ourselves as well. Like uh, for sure, but, yeah. Um, it, I mean, it changed my mind too. You know, just uh, I, I found I found the movie jarring, and and then I realized oh, it's supposed to be jarring. You know, I, mm-hmm. so I, it changed my mind hearing hearing her talk about it. And I, of course. You know, she's not coming from an objective point of view either. I'm sure she's forgiving things in the movie that maybe she didn't like just because of how powerful it was for her as well. So, you know, I don't know. I I think that's the mark of good art. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Brit, you mentioned the phrase uh, tragedy porn. It's an interesting category, right? Because I typically reserve that for something from the likes of like uh, Lars von Trier, you know, like a punishing movie (laughs) that kind of just attacks you. And maybe doesn't have as much heart as you'd want or maybe not much empathy. And I I just definitely didn't feel that this way. Like bad things do happen, but so do good things in a way like it feels it feels true to life. I feel like, you know, it's as it is as punishing as life can be. And I think I'll say this. Yeah. It's definitely leaps and bounds better than mid 90s. Oh God! <laughs> oh God! All so right, sit through that. All right, cultural tourism bullshit. <laughs> fair, fair enough. High praise. High praise. Um, <laughs> I'll just say a few things, then we can get into like I don't think there's going to be that many spoilers, but let's. Uh, I'll, I'll say a few things on my thoughts on the movie. This was an incredible uh, film-going experience for me. I mm-hmm. mean, 
this I, I tweeted this, but this is the biggest swing I've had from I don't give a shit about any of what's happening right now to I, <laughs> this might be a masterpiece. You know, like uh, the first. 20, 30 minutes of the movie, it's just really like you're you're just with this woman in her daily existence. You, you, you it's very know. slice of life. Yeah, very slice yeah. of life. You're just going around cleaning things, interacting with the kids, tucking them into bed, um, and that's it. And then it's like, okay, well, is this going to be the whole movie? Like, is this what everyone is calling a masterpiece? Like, this is whatever, you know. Um, and then you, you start to see, like, what the the masterful strokes are, you know, which is that you have these extremely long, deliberate camera motions that are loaded with detail. Like, um, uh, we played this game recently. We talked about it uh, on on one of Jeff's podcasts called Red Dead Redemption 2. And it, it's, a, it's a game where, like, you're riding around the Old West and every now and then you'll encounter... Like somebody who's like, oh, my horse fell on me. My horse fell on me. I need you to help me up. And like, there's just like all these stories everywhere, you know? And I know obviously that game was inspired heavily by film, but that's how I felt about this, this movie in the sense that like every frame, there is like a dozen stories going on, right? Mm-hmm. All the background artists. It was artists, weird that all those horses fell on all those people. <laughs> that was falling. odd. Yeah. But it's like in the background, there's, you know, there's like, oh, there's a guy arguing with someone in the restaurant, right, that you're in. And like that's a whole story playing itself out. And and there's like a dozen of those every scene, you know, that just like narratives playing themselves out in the background. Like it, it's just all so packed with detail. Uh, and it's, I, it's like the, it's the kind of movie that, you don't see anymore because anytime that Mm -hmm. filmmakers want to pack the frame with stuff, they use visual effects now, Mm -hmm. you know, usually in the movies that we watch anyway, but this like harkens back to something like bridge of the river Kwai, you know, where if they want to have 400 people in the background, they got 400 people (laughs) to stand in the background. And there, there are shots in this movie that are timed so precisely that I uh, I can't yeah mind understand it mind boggling how it was there's achieved. a shot where the camera is sort of slowly panning across and it's timed perfectly to this guy literally coming out of a cannon in the background <laughs> way far away and it's like what did it take to cue the cannon at the exact right <laughs> like how many times did they have to do this with and that's I mean it's not just foreground and cannon and background it's like. 300 people doing all kinds of stuff yeah, and also yeah. canon in background. You know, yeah. it's insane. And that's not rare. This movie is just full of that. It's mm-hmm. insane. I, I think yeah, that phrase, Jeff, like, uh, like something we don't see anymore. Like I was getting a lot of like, uh, Fellini in here, like, yeah. uh, like eight and a half or I'm record or something or, uh, Cassavetes, like just, just life, just people going through life. And that's the story. That's the movie. You know, and you're interesting. It really just depends on that. How, mu- how much interest you can find, like all these different stories you're seeing in front of you. Although interestingly, like not too much connected to Fellini's uh, own film called Roma. Uh, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which takes place in Italy. Uh, but the uh, this this movie reminded me of the intro. To, this is a really obscure reference. And I think I've talked about it on the podcast before the mm-hmm. intro to the screenplay. For Charlie Kaufman's uh, Synecdoche in New York, which is yeah. – I'll, I'll I'm not going to read the whole thing or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read any of it. I'm just going to summarize what happens in the intro. But he, he talks – the intro is like very meta as the movie Synecdoche is about. And he's talking about how he, he's talking with a – in the intro, he is recounting the story of getting the script published that you are reading, like you're holding in your hands, right? 
and he's talking about like how he's uh, interacting with his book agent and uh, how he once act- asked his book agent, like, tell me about yourself, you know, um, tell me about your life. And then the book agent, like the book agent, like gives him a whole recounting of his whole life and, and, and the loves that he's had and, and, um, you know, how he once had different career paths and so on and so forth. And like these people who are like side characters in your life. Uh, they have their own story. Like we are our own, we are like the main characters in each of our own stories. And what we don't realize is all the side characters, like everyone else is their own main character. And uh, the intro was, uh, mm-hmm. of this book, Synecdoche, like the screenplay was talking about how it's difficult to let people into your mind in their fullness to like consider how full someone else's life in is. That's just a side character in your life. Um, and I think that's ultimately what this movie does is it's, is like, this is a side character in this person's life, but this movie invites you to experience, um, partially like the fullness of their life to, to, to mm-hmm. let you know, like, Hey, this, this person had a whole narrative arc that like you might not have, uh, considered in your existence. Um, and at the same time, you know, all the stuff I said earlier about like the camera movements and how it does feel like you are experiencing it through his eyes, through Poirot's yeah. eyes. Uh, I think we briefly all... mentioned the sound design too, but I just want to say like in key moments, the sound design is just astonishing. Like it turns into basically an action movie type of soundtrack, like fully bombastic uh, gunshots, uh, fire burning, trees crashing. Uh, I'm very happy that Netflix is releasing this movie so that everybody gets a chance to see it. But I wish everybody also had access to like, you know, great sound systems in their homes to really hear what this movie is doing. Yeah, because that's a big part of it. This is one of the first movies where I would say that the sound is equally as, if not more important than the visuals. And also like, you know, you know, Davindra, you and I may have some disagreements about this sometimes, but it's basically like, um, in general, I agree that the movie experience is better, right? But yeah. for the most part, I think you get like 80, 90% of the, yeah. the experience if you're watching it at home. Well, especially like if you have a slow, talking movie like this one, too. Like, typically, like, well, okay, you yeah, can watch especially it. Especially if right? you have a good sound system and a good TV. Like, you, you generally, you can get pretty good with your home sound system. This is the one movie uh, that I've seen this year that I would say, like, you really need to go see this on a big screen to to kind of get the full experience. Um, I didn't even care for it that much, but I have to say that like, I wish I had seen it in a theater (laughs) because I wish I had this immersive experience with it instead of like, you know, my basic flat screen. And, you know, I just, I kept thinking about all the people that were going to watch it at home. Like I was, and probably with like worse TVs. How like unfortunate that is because maybe they wouldn't like it as much either and maybe they Mm -hmm. wouldn't really connect with it and if it is designed to be such an immersive experience i just have to wonder like what the hell he was thinking i mean i guess i understand what you're thinking you're just trying to get it to as many people as possible but like if that design aspect is so important like i don't know man well, a couple things uh, in response to that, Britt. First of all, I, I would say this movie is probably a hard sell for the studios, right? Like, hey, uh, it's th- this movie I'm shooting, it's about my my maid when I was growing up. It's in <laughs> black and white, and 99% of it is in uh, non-English language. So you're not. it's hard to get people to fork over like $40 million for that. Um, and so like he, I think primarily it was just to get it made. Right. Uh, but then mm-hmm. also, um, Netflix is dipping its toes into theatrical. Now, uh, th- the minute I left my screening, I got an email, uh, from my local PR firm saying that they are expanding this to 600 theaters, 
the the day that it's released right. on Netflix. So uh, I think there will be an opportunity for people to see this in theaters, and, and I'm glad for that. So uh, understand, I mean, I think Ted Sarandos recently said that people are going to enjoy Roma just fine, whether they're watching it on the big screen or on their phones, which... Or on their phones, Shut up, Ted Sarandos. Which no. rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, uh, and I, I, my favorite tweet about that was uh, somebody saying, do you know how hard it is to mix something in Dolby Atmos? <laughs> and then quote, <laughs> quoting that, uh, that message. Um, but yeah, this is a movie that I think is is definitely uh, something you you should enjoy on the big screen if you can. And just, the, the we talked about the level of detail and all this stuff going on in the background, and I just was thinking to myself like i can barely comprehend this when there's like this side this tiny character that's a speck in the background and they are like actually in reality you know three feet tall on this gigantic screen uh if i'm watching it on a phone and they're basically a speck you know i don't know how uh, i'm gonna even understand what's going on a phone Um. is certainly a a bridge too far (laughs) but uh i I agree with you all. I'm not disagreeing. But it looked good on your 80-inch TV is what you're saying. Jeff, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I certainly was taken in by this movie on my, my large television, you know, uh, with the lights out in my house with surround sound. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's possible to enjoy this at home. I don't think it's a – it's like watch it in a movie theater or don't watch it at all. I would certainly wouldn't yeah. condone that. But, but yes, yeah, don't, like, don't Jeff, watch it like your phone. Your presentation, like the DVD presentation, did they even give you surround sound in that thing? Yeah, like, no, this, I don't know. There's 5.1. There's 5.1 in that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, but at least, like, uh, you know, Atmos comes through Netflix now, too. So the people who are set up for that can get, like, a similarly um, interactive experience. Uh, also, J- Dave, you just mentioned that it's in black and white. We didn't really talk about the look of this movie. I just want to say, like, it looks, it doesn't look like any black and white movie I've ever seen. And I think because, um, he shot it digitally, right? Yeah, I believe, I believe that's correct. Yeah, it's it looks really crystal clear, right? Yeah, it, yeah, very sharp. Um, and we just never, we just never see that look. And yeah, it's it's very sharp, but it is sort of like you're looking at the past with the tools of today. I don't know. There's something really interesting about that and I, very I like unique the, to this film. I thought the black and white was actually a really good choice because. Mm-hmm. Like for me, when I'm when I'm shooting photography and stuff, and I use black and white, I I do so because I want you to be focusing on um, something really specific, like the the expression on this person's face or the movement that this this frame is capturing, uh, and I want to strip away. Like when this is me personally, I'm not saying anyone else, but like me personally, I want to strip away any distraction from the thing that I'm showing. Right? Is like you remove the color, you're removing information from the frame, and I actually think. If he, if this had been shot in color, uh, it might have been less effective because like yeah. the the it would have been so distracting like with all these different things going on. Um, It'd be, be like very colorful. Like oh, there's a lot of stuff right you're, now. You're focusing on the people. Yeah, you're focusing on the people. You're focusing on that yeah. person's like a wardrobe. You know, you're not focusing mm-hmm. on the totality of this like scene or the expression on this person's face. You know, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it like for me the black and white had the had the effect of enhancing the experience uh in yeah. insofar as I imagined it against a you know non-existent color version that I think would have been much more distracting so there there's also this one shot before the whole fire sequence where we're just staring at the trees and you can kind of see the embers in the trees and I was just thinking like how how do you even see that like how is the <laughs> camera even capturing yeah, that yeah yeah it's in, it, it's because it's so faint. You could have been see, some like, the... could have been some CG there, but yeah, I, I, I agree that it like be. it could be. I, I agree that that was, I a, wonder, that was an amazing moment. Yeah, I wondered about. I mean, the very very first shot of the movie, yeah, is a reflection of a plane flying overhead, and I went, 
any sane filmmaker would do that digitally, but I kind of wonder if he just like timed it right. Yeah. You know? I think it was a CG plane. That's my that's my take on it. But anyway. God, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so for the for the sanity of the crew. He's like, it took no, wait, uh, six months to plane. get that shot, Jeff. Because <laughs> yeah. they there's could only do a take every the they could only do a take every like uh, six days. Um, but there's but there's like I mean we I talked about the cannon shot. There's another tracking shot that lasts very very long. They go into water, come back out of water, and then settle at the exact moment the sun is setting at the perfect spot behind. It's like. Yeah. How? How? How do you even do that? All right. So, do we want to get into spoilers for this, or shall we just sure, sure. Uh, let's there, get there the, let's get the spoilers um, for this movie uh, starting right now? Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. Now. You want to be fooled. So Jeff, you were talking about one of my favorite shots of the film, right? Which is uh, it's extraordinary. The, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know how that was achieved. Um, I don't either. It's, it, it, it's mind-boggling because because basically it's that sh- the final shot where she rescues the kids, and uh, I, I have no idea. Like the because the, the camera has the same. Sort of very deliberate passive movement, except did they just like build a rail that yeah, goes they, over the water or they, something? My yeah. guess is they built some massive rig that you know it yeah. makes it look effortless, but in reality, there's like 50 people behind there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it looks incredible, and then you hear the surf like around you, you know, and it's yeah. it feels dangerous, and yet the camera still oh, it's just going to move at like you know half a mile mm-hmm. per hour along this uh, very <laughs> steady track. Uh, it was incredible, and yeah, they, they uh, shot it like right at like I don't think the sun was CG in that scene. You know, like I think they really picked the right time to do it. Um, and and they all huddled together. The performances are all stellar. Like these kids are pretending to drown. Then they, there's no cuts. They they come out <laughs> of the water. They all huddle together in the perfect formation, just as the sun is peeking out behind their heads. It's like. <laughs> How do you even do that? Like, just on a pure logistics level, how do you even accomplish that? So let me ask you, Britt. Uh, I mean, I know you weren't a huge fan of the movie, but, like, did you appre- like did you appreciate the technical virtuosity, at least? Or was Yeah, feel- I mean, I definitely appreciate the, te- the technical aspects of this film, the filmmaking, the black and white. I mean, I really do appreciate all of that, and I respect it, and I understand it. I just, yeah, I guess there's like this big black hole where my heart should be or something. <laughs> I, just... I don't necessarily think so because I, I think like, yeah, okay, the, the scene that we talked about is, you know, there's there's a scene where she gives birth to her child and it's it's stillborn, right? Is that the, the correct Ugh, term? Yeah, that's really mm-hmm. rough. And that that is when you use an image like that, right, I, I feel like uh, you you really need to have justified doing yeah. that to a character. Yeah. And that is going to be a highly subjective point of view, whether the filmmaker did enough to justify that. And I could I, I myself, Britt, was really I wasn't sure. I was like, OK, this movie's pretty good. But did it justify doing that to that character? Right? I, I stood up and said, fuck you, movie. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you for putting <laughs> fuck you for putting me through that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it, and, and you don't even I mean, it's not even just the fact of it, which is horrific enough. It's the tone and tenor of it which is as matter of fact and callous as could possibly be. And the camera lingers and stays and forces you to sit there with her and forces you to watch how absolutely cold 
and heartless the doctors behave with regard to ma- forcing her to witness it and uh, ripping the dead body from her arms and then uh, performing, you know, wrapping it up, all of it, you're just forced to be there. And I was angry with the movie at that point. I was angry. I was like, I, you, you have made me care about these people. And to do that, not only to them, but to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate you. And, and, you know, and I think it comes back around. I mean, for me, that moment was justified with her line at the end where she says, I didn't want her, which I can't even say right now without choking yeah. up. My God. It's just like, oh, but we sorry. don't know if that's how she really felt or like her guilt. Just, yeah, there's a lot going on there, it's, but I love, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that, that works. scene is justified mm-hmm. by that line. Yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. I think, but I, I, I could eat like, I, I don't know. I, I think you're probably right, Jeff. Like, I think that's where yeah. I came out on the film too, but I, I, I could easily see myself, you know, if I watched it on a different day, not coming out on that side of the film, right. Mm-hmm. I could see myself being like, okay, you like when you, yeah, set the stakes that high. You really need to justify doing that to your character. You really need to be like this. Th- there's a meaningful reason we did this. We made we made you as a viewer sit through this. We made the character go through this, and uh, you, you know it's it's a toss up for me. It's a toss up. Like I, I can understand why you could leave that and be like, nope, f you. Like th- this movie didn't do enough to justify it. Um, and uh, I think I barely came out on the right side of that. So, um. But the movie is full of that, right? I mean, it's full of 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 being with her through these callous moments where she she's you know casually cast aside, or you know she travels for miles and miles and miles to get to the father, and he behaves in a way that is repugnant and harsh. And uh, in another like shot, Danny McBride character, <laughs> yes, yes, he is foot fist way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's um, another shot where like. She, we have this huge emotional scene with the two of them and the, it doesn't cut and there's like a thousand people in the background and he runs off and gets on that truck and it, we're all we just just the logistics yeah, of just like just, how did you time out. it so that he got you know on the truck and, and yeah it's incredible um but uh you know that leads to the another bravura sequence of the movie which is they are at the furniture shop Ugh. and i yeah. thought that was a brilliant sequence because you start with the camera inside the furniture shop and it's slowly pan- – and first of all, I love that juxtaposition between there is – all hell is breaking loose outside but like commerce continues, right? Like yeah, that, yeah. that feels very um, – you know, I, I have not been in a situation like that personally but it feels like, you know, we've had protests in whatever location and like, hey, the, the cafe – the Starbucks is still open. You know what I mean? Like it's not like everything yeah. stops and then the camera slowly pans over and you see – this massive scene with like hundreds of background artists and all hell is breaking loose. And it just seems so intricately choreographed. Um, yeah. And, and then to it, explode it, it's, at the perfect moment, yeah. you know, to, yeah. And, and it, it's, the movie is full of that where yeah. it's just like the, just the, the timing of everything. And you've mentioned this, but I don't think we've spelled it out in exact detail about how deliberate the camera is, is always like, mm-hmm. it's not that the, camera operator got there just in time and or you know whipped over and caught the thing coming out the window which would have been <laughs> spectacular enough it's that the the camera was on a move that was slow and deliberate and never broke pace and the exact moment it needed to see a thing it sees that thing and that thing is incredibly intricate and insane yeah you know it's like the camera feels how? completely indifferent to what is happening right yeah. it feels like yeah. 
hey, I, I might I might catch something interesting, I might not, but like I'm just gonna it always continue. does. Right. I'm always just gonna continue <laughs> on this path no matter what. Uh really fascinating filmmaking style, really, really a tremendous accomplishment. So mm-hmm. um any closing thoughts before we move on to our review of the favorite? Uh uh just want to say like there there are certain elements of this movie that feel almost like supernatural at times like just like a hint of like magic uh i love the stories from one of the boys who's like when i was old yeah. i was a sailor and i didn't know how to swim i was like oh this that's a fun story or <laughs> is this like a kid just like remembering his past life and everyone's like what you're just a kid like yeah you don't know what you're talking about uh, but also the scene before the insane um birth sequence you know the thing that triggers that is her seeing that douchebag and almost it's like the fear of that and the revulsion of it. And like, there's a lot going on there. It almost feels like maybe at that moment she was like, Oh yeah, I do not want this. Yeah. You're saying the coincidence of her seeing the the father in that, in that scenario. Yeah. My favorite part, my favorite part is when he's like, ah, I'd love to go in, but they won't let me. And she's like, no, you can come. And he's like, nah, I got an appointment. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, God. That well, shit-back father. Yeah, the, the yeah. father is like an asshole. Um, but uh, also the way the father is shot is really interesting. Like uh-huh. when you first meet the father, he's in the car and you don't see his face, right? It, it almost yeah. feels like the father is like inaccessible to you. Um, which is probably, you know, that's probably what he was trying to convey is that like yeah, his ego the, cannot be contained in that house, basically. Right. But and he that, takes the bookshelves, but not the books. <laughs> it's very weird. So funny. Very weird. Yeah. Uh, but overall, I, I really appreciated this film because I think it's like it's it's not only about how we like tangentially interact with each other and impact each other's lives in meaningful ways, but it's also about like how outside events, you know, intercede to uh to affect our lives in, in like ways that are tangential and really important and as jeff pointed out it's also about um how men are terrible right i mean it's both of these the theme of the year women yeah. both of these women are like in their own parallel way dealing with um terrible men uh so uh, a lot of universality there so uh those are our thoughts on roma <laughs> It uh, sounds like it really resonated with some of us, didn't resonate with others, but, you know, uh, th- that's the way that uh, movies go sometimes. Uh, why don't we move on and get to our review of The Favourite? Dearest Queen, you are mad, giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly, we are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh. Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see. And I heard the word fat. Fat. And and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. I apologise for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you. As something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. It is important to make new friends in court, is it not? You're so beautiful. Stop it, you mock me. If I were a man, I would ravish you. (laughs) You have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. That was from the trailer for The Favourite, the newest film by director Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, This is, I think, Yorgos Lanthimos' first movie that he didn't write. Uh, it was written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Mm. In early 18th century England, a frail Queen Anne occupies the throne 
and her close friend Lady Sarah governs the country in her stead. When a new servant Abigail arrives, her charm endears her. Uh, I'm sorry, her charm endears her to Sarah. So, Britt, you actually wrote a piece for SlashFilm.com about The Favorite. Um, it was entitled Exploring the Strange and Absurd True History of The Favorite. We'll get to kind of the true and, and false aspects of the story later on. Uh, but overall, I wanted to hear, like, what did you think of this movie? Um, I loved it. I loved it so much that so me and Lindsay Romaine, my roommate, uh, we we had tickets to go see an early screening here in Austin and but I got the screener like on a Saturday morning and I was like um I think we have to watch this right now so we watched it Saturday night that Saturday night and then we loved it so much that we went to go see it again Monday in the theater um which I just like I rarely ever see something twice that quickly and uh I loved it so much that it made me wonder if Suspiria really is my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> because wow. I'm just like, man, this is it's just it's so darkly comedic. And I mean it is Yorgos Lanthimos's most, I think, accessible work to yes. date. Yeah. Um and I think a lot of that is owed to like the screenplay, which he did not write. But um but he's still there. Like you still feel him especially in the final scene, which we can talk about later. And I really want to, um, but it's just above and beyond it being really darkly funny. Um, it's just this really interesting story about loneliness and female friendships and this sort of like performative nature of, you know, of what friendship is even removed from the court setting. I think that, you can sort of relate to, you know, are these people my friends because I have something to offer them or are they my friends because they really love me? And I think that there's real love between all of these women in some way, mm-hmm. but just by virtue of the setting and the time, I think that there is a lot of artifice, unfortunately, to it. Um, and I think Olivia Coleman is extraordinary and I hope she wins every award if Viola Davis doesn't, and if Lady Gaga beats both of them, I will burn everything down. Um, <laughs> I just, I think it's just so great. It's so fun and weirdly moving, and it has bunny rabbits and <laughs> Olivia Coleman shoving cake in her face. And I probably haven't mentioned this on here before. If I have, I'm sorry, but there are a few things I enjoy more in film and television than watching women eat. <laughs> because it's just <laughs> it's like you know, for a moment, uh, they feel real <laughs> there's there's a lot of twitch streams you could get into <laughs> i could probably host one i bet I um yeah i just i love that and so watching her <laughs> gorge herself on cake uh i don't know and i know that people might not find her particularly relatable because they find the character heightened or you know lame or daft in a way but i think she's just so complex and wonderful and i found her perhaps the most relatable character for me of any movie i saw this year like i just really got her loneliness and her sadness and um her sense of humor which was just wicked and i don't know i mean there's just she just feels like this like 
this id in a way. She's just all like want and need. And she's so plain about it. She's so childish at times. And I think it's like she's this urge that everyone has, like this insecurity that we don't voice the way that it really feels mm. inside. And I just, I love it. The more I'm talking about it now, the more I'm like, maybe this really is my favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, this is in my top three of the year, at least. Um, so yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, but uh, Jeff Kanata, very kind of curious what you thought of this movie. What do you think of the favorite? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my thoughts are best summed up. Oh, my God. In the form of a limerick. It's okay. The first one was good. This one, this one might be pretty good. Here we go. There you go. Ready? Right. Here we go. Okay, here here go. Performances that light up the screen and a script that's deliciously mean these women are spurned, and each of them learns you best not miss when you come at the queen. Mm. Mm. Uh, I don't know how I feel about the spurned and learns rhyme. Uh, I don't think those things actually rhyme. Well, you uh, I'll you accept can, it. Yeah, Brit <laughs> <Brit allows it. laughs> Well, yeah, I, our, our guest is the adjudicator, so fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Pass. And uh, also, you can go straight to hell, Dave. Okay. And <laughs> moving on. Um, <laughs> I would like to basically underscore everything Brit said, uh, starting chiefly with give Olivia Coleman the Academy Award <laughs> right now. Give it to her. Oh, my give it God. To, I, Jeff and I rarely agree. This is a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful give moment. Let's celebrate it. I don't want to even – I mean, listen. I like Viola Davis. I thought Viola Davis was great. Don't come at me with Viola Davis. Olivia <laughs> Coleman's. This is Olivia Coleman's award. If she doesn't get it, I, I agree. Britt, you and I are burning it all down. Yes. It's uh, she is extraordinary. And I think you nailed it so well, Britt. You you encapsulated it so perfectly. And I will only add this tidbit. I have a two-year-old at home. <laughs> <laughs> and she is so perfectly encapsulating what it's like to be around a two-year-old who, yes, is all id all the time. It's all I want, I need, I love, but I hate, but I'm angry, but I'm need, but I, I'm insecure, but I'm, you know, stomping around. It's It reminded me of my two-year-old. It's an exquisite performance. Um, I, I, just, I just thought she was doing next-level work. And I love, love, love the script. I think the script of this movie is so fun as you said it's darkly comic it's wickedly comic there are exchanges that are just lightning sharp you know they're just whips whip smart and and so biting and fun and but the use of language is delicious and crackles it is it is my favorite kind of verbiage in in drama where the actors can just dig into it and it's got layers and they're just, you know, saying what they say, but also saying 12 other things. It's so great. It's so great. Yeah. The Nicholas Holt character alone, right? <laughs> Every line that that character says <laughs> is perfectly calibrated to make yes. you hate that character. <laughs> he is such yes. a delightful asshole. Uh, yeah. And I was just like, wow, that like li literally every time he opens his mouth, it's just like, wow. And I don't know how he's going to be an, a dick in this scene, uh, but he's going to he's going to exceed my expectations. And uh, that's what happens. I mean, what a wonderful character. He plays Harley in the movie. Um, very different performance than anything else he's ever done uh, that I've seen him in, at least. Uh, so uh, and 
and Rachel Weiss has has uh, a wonderful line, especially in the first half of the movie. She is just digging into people, and you know, walks into a room, owns the room, you know, totally emasculates everyone in it and leaves. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. the coolest, coolest stuff, and all with language, not because she's you know powerful, it's because she's wittier, and uh, you know, it's very Oscar Wilde, but like with uh, you know, with dynamite. <laughs> um, and, but I, but I will say what I don't like about the movie mm-hmm. is I don't like how it's shot. I don't like <laughs> sort of hyper modern fisheye lens. Yeah, super wide. Yeah. Uh, he shot the whole thing with a GoPro, I think is, is all how it shooting down. it from underneath really? the actors. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Like some shots feel like it could be a GoPro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of, uh, fisheye lens, a lot of, uh, you know, shooting up at actors, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of weird pans. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a period piece, but it's very modern filmmaking. And we kind of touched upon that with the last movie and, and kind of lauded it for that. But this movie, it, it, I, I found it abrasive and I, I just kind of got exhausted by that. And I kind of understand the point. I think the point was to be a little exhausting and the point was to sort of, Uh, be up the nose of these characters to a certain extent, but I just would have preferred this wonderful script and these crackling performances to be captured in a slightly more conventional way that let me enjoy it a bit more. Um, But I mean, I think the movie overall is, is just fun and uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I will say that I do kind of also agree with Jeff there too. (laughs) so weird uh no there's just like there there are a few scenes in particular you know and the one that first comes to mind and it's usually just like when it's one character by themselves and the camera sort of pans around them um and there's like one where you know sarah's writing writing the letters later and it looks to me like and i didn't notice this when i watched it at home but when i saw it in the theater it looked like it was in a higher frame rate than the other scenes Mm -hmm. and it felt really like masterpiece theater and kind of off-putting in contrast like i just i didn't understand that choice but it didn't really you know spoil my enjoyment of the film i just thought it was like a a weird visual choice yeah yeah so let me defend the style of the movie if i may um so i think (laughs) totally understand if you find it off-putting um it is at the it feels very anachronistic right at the very least like it feels like Um, it's not shot classically, right? And we're in a very classical setting, but because uh, the script itself is very like yeah, uh, the script plays it straight, and, pretty much, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, I I don't know if the script plays it straight. I think the script really goes all in on you know this is like bringing you know Veep level uh, snark <laughs> to uh, Downton Abbey or something like right. something or to the Crown, like something on that level. And yeah, I think because it's very of that, irreverent, it's right? You could say word, yeah. the descriptor, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think uh, here are the two things that, uh, or th- uh, 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 let me say three things that I think the the filmmaking style does for this movie. One is uh, that by shooting it in wide angle, uh, the surroundings are greatly emphasized, right? And mm-hmm. like you see way more of the surroundings yeah. in the frame. And I think you know this movie is really concerned with. What the surroundings like? It it is very occupied with trying to depict the vast gulf between the haves and the have-nots, and um, there is like a fairly pointless scene uh, where people are like throwing fruit at someone, 
And it's just like, <laughs> but, but like the, the function of that scene is like, hey, things are so decadent here. Like we can waste fruit by throwing it at people for fun, you know, like, and, and so I think the style fits in with, with that uh, sensibility of, hey, these people are truly rich and look at all the things that make them rich surrounding them. So that's one uh, effect that this uh, style has. Another thing is, uh, another thing I thought was interesting was virtually every dialogue scene was shot from below, which is a very mm-hmm. unflattering um, point of view, but it it does emphasize the like ceiling and it makes them seem very domineering and very like in control. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, like, you would not have been able to shoot this movie in this style in any other location because the ceiling would have looked very boring. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas every ceiling looked really interesting here. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's like, okay, if you've got it, you might as well use it, which is like this incredible ceiling. But on the other hand, it also serves <laughs> to like make the characters very, um, you know, like like they're like trying to take control. Like they're in control. You shoot someone from below when you're yeah. like, you're trying to say someone like is in control and, and like, and over, oh, like domineering and over what the circumstances are. And mm-hmm. the final it, thing. It also like, kind of shows the, the, the oppression of the scenery too. Yeah. I think that's no, a that's big right. part of it. Too. Yeah. No, like great it's call. towering over all of them. That's yeah. right. That's right. Great call. Out. Um, and then the final thing I'll say is that. There's maybe like six, I don't know, a dozen close-up shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. And you're used to seeing in a regular movie hundreds of close-ups, right? Because in a dialogue scene, you'll see like over-the-shoulder, close-up, over-the-shoulder, close-up, you know, cut, cut. Uh, and this movie has very few of those shots. And then the effect is when there is a close-up, it is really effective. You're, you're really paying attention to what that character is thinking and feeling when there's a close-up. And um, so that is my that is my defense of uh the style of the movie jeff and my Britt. favorite part of your def- my favorite part of your defense <laughs> is that the the ceilings are pretty and yeah. we need to see them that's right that's right that's right <laughs> but yeah um, they're too pretty they're like what the <laughs> fuck are these people living in what is going on here that's that's what it's showing you there you go thanks Devendra. yeah so yeah. i don't know if that resonates with any of you guys Britt and jeff but um that is uh i rest my case i think you know i case. think that's uh i think that's a uh a strong defense i just it just didn't didn't work for me particularly yeah. <laughs> I, I just i found it more distracting than than uh enhancing you know it it, it uh i didn't want to be thinking about it i wanted I, I loved everything else so much i didn't want to be constantly reminded i'm watching a movie you know Divin your hardware hit me with your opinions on this movie uh, it's fine <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you you guys can't stop talking about it. Uh, it is my favorite Yorgos Lanthimos movie. You know, I've wanted to like this guy's work um, for so long. Um, but yeah, Dogtooth, it, it was fine, but left me cold. The Lobster, you know, funny at times, but still left me cold. Um, what was the other one? Uh, Sacred Killing Deer? Killing of a Sacred Deer. God yeah. damn, that movie. <laughs> that movie's just so bleak and so, like, so pointless. <laughs> And like, so, so good is what I think you're trying to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, talk about a movie leaving me cold, Britt. Like, there there you go. That is that is a movie with, like, a... And I know it's purposeful, but that's a movie with a black heart, and that's just kind of what he's selling. I'm seeing him paired up with, you know, other screenwriters really shows the difference. And, yeah, to me, it's not only his most accessible movie, but, yeah, his most uh, entertaining one, you know, because all the others are are sort of like that misery porn type thing of people just really being beaten down. There's so much life in this movie. Um, I love the core relationships. I mean, you, you guys said pretty much all of it, but extra shout out to Rachel Weiss. Cause I know Olivia Coleman's getting a lot of love in this movie and she was, she was great, but I, uh, I've stand Rachel Weiss for a long time. 
I think this movie really shows like her, just like her sheer power, her sheer force of will. And uh, honestly, we haven't mentioned Emma Stone. I thought she was good here too. Like the, that's uh, yeah. just a bit conniving enough to find her charming, but also never quite trust her. Uh, yeah, there's this movie has so much going on. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Of so fun. were you being sarcastic when you said it's OK? Like, I think you were right. I, I was being sarcastic <laughs> okay, because good. you guys wouldn't shut up about how much you love this movie. <laughs> uh, I think it's very good. I yeah, it wouldn't be that high up on my top 10 this year, but mm. I'm still figuring that whole thing out. All right. Well, I yeah, uh, we can get to spoilers soon, but I thought it was really awesome as well. I mean, I think the uh, it's really those three roles, right? The Emma Stone's role, the Rachel Weisz and mm-hmm. the Olivia Coleman roles that really uh, those are three stellar performances. And uh, one of the great things about this movie that I experienced was uh, it makes you switch loyalties throughout the movie. Right, like at one point you're on this character side, another point you're on this character side, and so on. And and uh, I well, love a movie power, that power corrupts, you know. Right, I love how this movie kind of um, never lets you be complacent in your opinion on any of the characters, right? And they're all fairly complex characters. Like they all uh, are acting in ways that are relatable um, and in ways that make sense. And um, uh, so I think just the strength of the characters, the obvi- obviously the production design is extremely lavish. I've already defended the style of the movie. Uh, it all comes together to form a very compelling package. So huge fan of the favorite. Uh, and any other thoughts before we get to spoilers? Let's dive in to spoilers for the favorite starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. Uh, so one thing I want to talk about really briefly is the outfits in this movie. and oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, Rachel Weisz, when she's wearing that outfit that, like, uh, that she used to, <laughs> to go shooting people... Yeah, um, I'm like, I think this is like my new religion is Rachel Weiss <laughs> in this outfit. Uh, That's her it, superhero role right there. She just looks oh, yeah. amazing in that outfit. And also um, later on in the film, uh, she has this massive scar on her face and mm-hmm. she wears this like ribbon she, over. It. I was just like, she wow. turns into an anime character. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just like, yeah. wow, she um, is, is like she looks like. Uh, way better than me in like the best day I could conceive of in the thousand years with a huge scar. like she pulls that scar off really well. Pulls you know what off. I'm saying? Like uh, even though she looks like a Bond villain, um, I mean she's like yeah she's straight she, out of an anime. She it's made like, it look elegant. She made the scar look elegant is what I think was a uh, huge achievement. Um, yeah, this is your best costuming Oscar right here too. Amazing, it's, it's amazing. so good. And I like the fact that she's there's one scene where they're like let's go shooting. And evidently they took three and a half hours to change clothes in order to do that. <laughs> uh, Britt, any, are, are you equally a fan of the outfits of this movie? Oh, my God. The outfits are to die for. The pants. I love Rachel Weisz in the pants. And it's just like this air of masculinity. And she just feels like she's the boss. Yeah. Like she is. She's daddy in that movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I just love that, like, that swagger that she has, I think, is unreal. And just all of the costumes. I mean, I was really taken the second time by Anne's, like, I don't know, to borrow from 30 Rock, how she's transitioning her pajamas into daywear. 
<laughs> like all of her all of her like you know bedroom robes and like fluffy pajamas and I was like I want to forget Meryl Streep's caftan in the post I want to live in this <laughs> uh, indeed uh, it, it was a really well costumed uh, film um, want to get to the ending relatively soon um, but any I mean there's just so many like favorite moments I have in this movie you know uh, like I don't know uh, first of all I think the the pranks that the the house people played on her it was like pretty <laughs> oh, brutal yeah. that's like yeah wow it's like the revenant of like house pranks it's like <laughs> the, you could like lose a limb doing some of that stuff it's uh it's pretty rough I guess but I guess it was a doggy dog world back then um <laughs> The old uh, sponge with lie in it gag, you know? <laughs> All I could think about was the scene in Fight Club where he's like, if you put water on this, it'll make it yes. burn worse. Yeah, I thought that's what was going to happen, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty rough. Uh, the the um, hand job scene, I thought was oh like... Oh, my God. I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> incredible. Just the way it's shot, too, where like her face is center frame and you like you don't see the hand job going on like it's she's blocking the hand job but it's just like and it's such an amazing framing because it's that's one of the close ups I was talking about earlier and uh <laughs> she, the the hand job is this is the farthest thing from her mind at that point right yeah. um oh yeah. my god it, well, his, it feels he... so real it's just like her <laughs> so disinterested in like the literal task at hand and just like obsessing over this petty fight and i also love because you know, Devendra's favorite movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, also mm-hmm. features this like dispassionate hand job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's I'm like, thing. is that just like his thing now? That's like his his deal, just dispassionate hand jobs. Well, mm. I think even that sounds than... like how I feel about his movies. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> his movies are a dispassionate hand job. Uh, uh, put that on the box. Um, <laughs> more than more than what showing how how uh, uninterested she is in the moment it also i think belies any any real passion she may have had for him it's it there was never a point at which she gave mm-hmm. a wit about that guy she played him for her advantage and didn't there was no point at which she felt anything for the guy she just saw an opportunity and took it and i love that like it, this guy is like oh, i fell for her she's amazing and he is a pawn in a much larger game it's so oh, great man. Their their like courting scene, that scene with them in the forest, is just like pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Most memorable courting sequences this year, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I also really love the moment where um, Rachel Vice returns back from being waylaid by the poison, and, <laughs> <laughs> and and Emma Stone's like, "You look like you've been through hell," and she's like, mm-hmm. "And I'm sure you shall pass through it someday." And like, <laughs> but the thing is. It feels like Heather's. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And when it's, um, so, it's so it's like somebody rewrote the crown as Heather's. <laughs> <laughs> when the guy with the duck uh, saves her from the uh, the the hovel she's in, yes. uh, that feels like for some reason that reminded me of Die Another Day when James Bond all like all like dirty and messed up just walks into a hotel and the guy knows who he is she walks <laughs> it back into the you know to the castle or palace and yeah it's whatever she's covered in shit and everything but she's still her she's still a baller it's great i did think it was like what was uh 
you know th- that that scenario that Rachel Weiss ended up in was like a best case scenario for oh, Emma. St- like even yeah. in her wildest dreams, I don't think she'd have thought like fell off the horse and been dragged for many hours <laughs> and then ended up. You know, like I don't think she was projecting that that would happen. She might like get mm-hmm. sick in her bedroom for like a day or two. I thought was uh, probably the best case there. Um, but uh, yeah, when she returns, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing. I, I I just want to mention that like the the motivations for these characters are really great because I think they're playing two different games. Rachel Weisz and and uh, Emma Stone's characters. I mean, I think that uh, Rachel Weisz does in fact love the Queen, but I do you know she is also very manipulative, right? She she is not like without blame in treating the Queen, but she ultimately has altruistic. Uh, yeah, uh, you know she's ultra, ultimately acting out of kindness and, and out of loyalty to her country. Whereas Emma Stone's motivation is just get me out of this terrible situation I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. right? And you can also relate to that. Like they're both very relatable impulses, and unfortunately, they have very different um, different impacts for the country. Um, and I I love the fact that the you know the biggest asshole in the in the land, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his, what's the guy you brought him up earlier? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Harley. Well, Harley. Harley, yes. Uh, has, I think, the most sympathetic position. He's like, <laughs> let's have peace. Let's stop the war. But he's such a dick. You're like, I don't I don't want him to win. But I like, he makes the most sense. Like, stop the war and also don't tax the people. It's, you know, he is, he is the most sympathetic <laughs> position from a humanitarian point of view. But yeah. he's such an asshole. Agreed. Uh, agreed. Um so yeah, the the characters are all super relatable. Uh, there, there's many uh, a couple other moments I just want to mention real quick, like the book, you know, throwing the books at her moment. That was really amazing. The moment when Emma Stone discovers like what's going on with the two of them in the oh, so good in the library, mm-hmm. and then later on, like when Rachel Weisz like uses the secret passage and then discovers Emma Stone in bed, and then like yeah. then she like runs away, and then Emma Stone like opens her eyes for just like a split second for like you know that Emma Stone knows what has just happened, yeah. right? She but, clocked like, it and she's fine with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, I, there's a there's a bit of a Chekhov's gun in in <laughs> it that like i love the scene where she literally was like oh you know if you don't put a pellet in you can pull the trigger and it's a funny jape and she's like oh yeah it's hilarious but i so thought that was a setup for something yeah. coming later but it never never pays off no it was just they're talking metaphorically jeffrey they're talking metaphorically mm-hmm. um but let's get to the end uh so let's talk about like what do we actually think is going on there right uh, i mean my interpretation is that like earlier on in the movie she's like please massage my legs and then like that becomes abigail like pleasuring the queen right and that we're watching a similar thing occur only under much more bitter circumstances i think it's Um, a be careful what you wish for type of situation it's like a twilight zone ending of like uh you got what you wanted but yeah so yeah and it's the the queen the queen reasserting her power and reasserting her position Mm -hmm. and uh, trying, you know, showing that you may f- be the favorite, but I'm still the queen. Right. Britt, what did you think of that scene? Um, I really, I really love that scene a lot. And it is the most like Yorgos Lanthimos moment in the whole movie. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the thing with like the rabbits and the way it just kind of keeps cutting back and forth between Anne's face and Sarah's face and, or Abigail's face and then the rabbits that are just sort of like doubling and tripling and multiplying and Anne's vision. And there's so much going on in that one moment. And 
I find it really striking. Like there's Anne who is definitely trying to reassert some form of dominance in one of the few ways that she can, at least in this situation. And, um, and this like, you know, look on her face as she's just sort of like looking at these rabbits and realizing that no amount of pleasure that she can receive by force or, you know, willingly is going to erase this pain. I mean, it's just pain just multiplying and, and loss. And it's just, it's taking over her vision. It's just, it's everything. There's so much loss to that character. And I find it really interesting too, because she does have vision problems. So that choice really plays into the way that she sees the world. Um, and then, you know, you have Abigail's face and like Emma Stone's just big, beautiful eyeballs. And, uh, and there's just like this look of resignation of, of, you know, I guess this is my life now. Like mm-hmm. this is, and she's like made her bed, you know, like this is my life. And it is sort of this humbling, not even, I think it's even worse than humbling, you know, it's dehumanizing in a way like, and, and it knocks her down maybe even rightfully so several pegs considering that just moments before she had toyed with the idea of squishing one of those poor rabbits with her freaking shoe. Um, well, isn't it, it's the queen's way of doing that back to her, right? It it is the metaphorical squishing of her down as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's just like, you know, she's getting a little too big for her, her breeches. And, (laughs) uh, yeah. And, and also, you know, that is something that's so, intimate and i think in that moment Anne realizes that there is nothing that's that different from between abigail and sarah except you know sarah at least actually really loved her yeah. um and they had known and each also, other like, since got childhood some work done. she like actually helped run the country which was nice yeah yeah i mean like and and they had known each other since childhood and they mm-hmm. had a bond and that's another loss for her and and for what you know this little brat who doesn't who also doesn't give a shit about the rabbits and the story behind those rabbits is like so sad that i'm just Ugh. like how did nobody care <laughs> the idea that someone would have 17 lost children is yeah. true yeah i mean and it right because you have to have progeny if you're if you're royalty and so you keep trying past the point that any sane human would stop but you can imagine like after six after 10 you would be a shell of a person and there's seven more after th- it's like, holy hell. What? Yeah. That, that's the moment that for me, she became ultimately sympathetic and I was on her side throughout the rest of that movie instead of the two favorites, I, you know, competing. I was on the queen's side. Yeah. I mean, I think it also, I mean, between that, I mean, you have this idea of her losing all of those children that arrests a person's development at a certain point mentally and emotionally. Um, I can't, well, she says you know, it, she says, you know, a little piece of you dies every time. Yeah. And it's, it's true. And, and between that and then also being raised in court and, you know, inheriting this position, which she kind of came to, I don't want to say by accident, but it's not like she was the first pick. I mean, her sister was queen before her mm-hmm. and the film doesn't mention her sister at all and probably for the better, but you do, do sort of feel the remnants of that broken relationship and the way that she clings to these women. And, um, you know, she's raised in this environment and, and that really also, you know, you're in a bubble and it's like child stars that we see who just grow up and they, they're a total wreck because they've stopped developing at a certain point. People just 
cater to their whims and they they live in a fantasy world and when they finally step out into some semblance of adulthood they don't know what the fuck to do mm-hmm. um so you kind of see that in her too so it's just like this two this twofold thing <laughs> where she's been reduced down to you know basically yeah acting like a toddler yeah, I think that's really um, beautifully said and a, a great interpretation of uh, the ending, uh, Britt. I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, I, I was kind of struggling to kind of it's yeah. so, it's so it's very Lynchian. You know, it's very like yes. we're just <laughs> dissolving all these like images in together and then, oh, you know, uh, movie ends. So uh, I think you really helped to kind of crystallize some of my thoughts on it. I really appreciate it. Um, a couple things I want to point out uh, about the movie, especially towards the end. First of all, there is that moving scene where. Uh, Emma Stone throws the letter away, right, or burns it, mm-hmm. and then she has like tears in her eyes. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I think I think like my interpretation was that like Emma Stone does have feelings, and or that like the letter was so powerful that you know she she really was moved by it. Um, and so I did think that was a great little kind of hint of kind of the inner life of Emma Stone's character in that moment. Um, don't know what you guys made of that, but uh, I quite liked it. Yeah. Um, there is a, there is just a, and completely unrelated. There's that moment when Rachel Vice realizes that they're coming for her and her husband, and she's like, "Hey, um, have you ever wanted to live in a different country?" <laughs> which yeah. felt very, nice. which yeah. felt very British. You know, it felt very like stiff upper lip kind of. Um, Even know. better though, she goes, "I guess the mail arrived." It's so good. <laughs> it's such a great line. Very very good. Yeah. Um and. Here's a question I had for you all as well. What did you make of the fonts in the movie? Uh, the, the oh my god, the formatting, right? <laughs> and the chapterization. Okay. Yeah, I forgot. I'm so glad that somebody reminded me of this. Yeah, because I totally forgot that I was going to try to take some screenshots and post them on Twitter. It is the same freaking font that they use in like the opening of Beavis and Butthead, where it's like Beavis and Butthead are not role models. They're not even. Oh real man. People. It's the same font. <laughs> this explains so much. Yeah, it's not a co- yeah. that's not a coincidence. Couldn't be. Could not be a coincidence. <laughs> I don't know that Yorgos Lanthimos is super familiar with that franchise, but I, I guess my interpretation of it was like he has these. Um, I don't know what it's called. Um, is it center justified or force justification? Right, where he has you know the the width of the text is fixed, and then no matter how many letters it is, it's going to fit in that width. Um, I thought it was kind of a statement on like Emma Stone's character trying to uh, fit into this very prim and proper situation against her nature. Um, and that that's what that was. But th- am I reading like way too far into the fonts or does anyone have any opinion on it? <laughs> Listen, I think that you can't say that Yorgos Lanthimos doesn't know about Beavis and Butthead because Ridley <laughs> yeah. Scott. It is just Beavis as bleak and cynical as all of his movies. So yes. Right. And I'm saying like, I when I spoke to Ridley Scott a couple years ago, <laughs> he talked for like a good few minutes and he said Beavis and Butthead rules and he like talked for a few minutes about how he loves that show. So oh, someone like Sir Ridley Scott. All right. So <laughs> So depending on your uh interpretation, it's either Beavis and Butthead homage or a <laughs> statement on the, you know, fish out of water nature of the one of the characters. <laughs> Listen, like one of them's brunette, one of them's yeah. blonde. Yeah. Oh my god, it, it it all lines up. <laughs> it fits. I think I think also, that is equally plausible. I, I mean, I'm the, just the, the whole like fruit throwing scene is abuse and butthead sketch. Yeah. Like basically, <laughs> mm. Jesus. All right. Well, I'm just and that whole part. That one part where Emma Stone is like, 
I am Cornholio. <laughs> That's not a That's, coincidence. That was really weird. Really that was really drilled. weird. I got to be honest. I was not expecting that, yeah. Jeff. Well, it's um, kind of like how Suspiria uses the Law and Order font, <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah. even has like the blue and the red. Like it's really weird. Mm. Oh, it makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, I don't want to finish this review without mentioning that dance sequence because what what the hell? Oh my god! Yeah. Well, that's so. What, that's was your interpre- what was your interpretation it's, of what that like that? In my opinion, so is like uh, you got you guys. Britt, what was your interpretation of what was actually going on in that sequence? Okay, in that scene, I really do feel like a couple of things are happening. One, Yorgos Lanthimos thought it would be really fun to do like yes yeah. step up to the court, and then also <laughs> I I think it's like. The the dances then were so intricate and so absurd. And there's like very little, I think, like, I think a lot of that's been lost to time now over the hundreds of years that have passed. <laughs> so I think it's like him just sort of like making up just like, what is this like really absurd and unnecessarily like you know, complicated dance that I can have them do. That's everyone was Elaine dancing. It was so badass. My favorite part is that she literally like walks up and selects who her partner was. And, (laughs) and they magically know that all of the insane (laughs) correct steps. Although I wonder if that was fully portrayed as real or is that what the queen is seeing? I think it's what the queen is seeing. It's it's like the queen's like kind of imagining Everyone else is having all this fun without her, basically. And, yeah, and also, it's, like, it's making like her jealous. very much right? subtler dance, and she's imagining just something much more. You I know? want so bad to know what the behind-the-scenes of that were. <laughs> but you're, like, you're Rachel Weiss, and you're in this, you know, period piece, and you have these incredibly exquisite clothes and this wonderful language. And then the choreographer comes in and is, like, <laughs> now he's going to pick, yeah, pick you up, and he's going to hold you, you know, horizontal and spin you around four times. And it's, like, What? <laughs> I really hope the choreographer was the little girl from the Sia music videos. <laughs> mm, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end of our review of The Favorite. Uh, this has been super fun talking to you guys about this movie. And uh, I, it's out in limited release right now. Uh, it is an awesome movie. And I hope you have a chance to check it out. So uh, that's our conversation. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week on the podcast. In the meantime, find more episodes of the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Britt Hayes, why don't you tell us where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Miss Britt Hayes. Um, and you can find me on Slash Film. I've been doing quite a bit of writing there. Um, you can also find me, uh, at Crooked Marquee where I've been writing some reviews. Uh, I've been doing news for the AV club and, uh, yeah, the Austin Chronicle. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, it's great to see your name pop up in all those places. Uh, continue to be a fan, Britt. Uh, Jeff Kanata, where can I find more of your work on the internet? Well, I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I have a video game podcast called DLC that you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Devendra Hardware. You can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra and I read about tech at Engadget.com. Also doing a tech podcast. It's like a Q&A thing at nomortech.net. That's no with a K. And uh, I'm doing a new podcast with C. Robert Cargill about the writing process. You can find that at Write Along Podcast. That's W-R-I-T-E. Along. Oh, you guys and your homonyms. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, com. Check it out. Uh, every week, a writing tip. Next week, uh, we are going to be reviewing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So I think that's going to be a really fun discussion. And also, 
uh, I think we're going to be – these guys have uh, forced me into it. We're going to be reviewing Mortal Engines as well, the new Christian we'll Rivers the new Christian Rivers movie. I, I just have a feeling it's going to be a disaster. Listen, how much further but, can Peter Jackson go? It'll well, he's not even directing. He's producing – he's oh, writing yeah, that true. movie, right? That's so, true. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean I, I, I was saying on Twitter like I feel like I've seen – 30 trailers for Alita, like Battle Angel, in the last uh-huh. six months, and I've seen two trailers for Mortal Engines. I, this movie just feels like it's not even coming out. Do, do you know the premise of that movie, Dave? Because it's bonkers. Yeah, it sounds insane. So, uh, anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll have a fun conversation no matter what, but that's what's on tap for next week's episode of The Slash Homecast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad, it's the Slash For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. Get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.